So a, a note of apology to begin was uh, I sent out the uh, small group questions uh, real early. I tried to get them done relatively quickly um, because the North group has me under the gun, the group that meets up there, because they meet on Tuesday. So it has to happen like this. Um, and so I sent out some really sloppy notes this week. But I know you all looked right past that. There were like a couple number twos in there. Uh, a number of misspelled typos. I didn't recognize it until our group met on Thursday, and I was looking at it, and I was almost embarrassed. Well, I kind of was embarrassed. But at any, at any rate, I'm sure y you all looked well past that, because um, I can't pledge to really do better. I'll try, but we'll see what happens. Um, the final scene, as we come this morning to the final scene of Luke 24, which will conclude on Saturday's worship coming up, we will conclude 44 through the ascension event of verse 53. So or the final sermon of Luke, uh, please try to be here. Uh, um, it will be Saturday afternoon at 3 will be the final sermon of Luke. Um, and then the, we'll, we'll end our time officially in Luke's gospel as we began our time in Luke's gospel. Each time we endeavor to take on a book uh, for a season of time, whatever that would be, we open by reading the book in whole. And then we conclude as a book end our reading of a book in whole. Now, again, uh, Luke, by word count, is the longest of the Gospels. And as you see, um, the, the chapters get quite long. So what we do in order to kind of uh, get a feel for Luke's Gospel and be fair in opening it and closing it is selected readings are given. So the, the, the next week, after we conclude the final sermon of Luke, then we'll have a read-through that will hit certain selected texts from the Luke's Gospel, and that will officially complete our journey through the Gospel of Luke. But this morning, as we move toward, as we're in Luke 24, which is the final scene of the Gospel, there's a particular concern here that I want to hit on regarding the resurrection um, that is given us here in Luke 24, that was created earlier in the night. So we're going to move, as was read, 36 through 43. But 36 through 43 is addressing a particular concern that is prompted earlier in the night. The, the, the question that is earlier in that night, if you'll notice, look up in verse 31. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now, the, the portion that he's addressing now in 36 through 43 is that next part of verse 31. And he vanished from their sight. You see, as we approach now, this scene where he appears in front of the disciples gathered, the question that he is then Luke, that is, as he records his particular angle on the events of the resurrection, is answering this question. How could Jesus be bodily, solid, real, as we'll see in a few moments and was already read for you, able to eat, taste, touch and speak, and yet at the exact same time, be all these things, a true human being, and disappear at will. This is the question. Their eyes were open, and he vanished from them immediately from their sight. Vanished. Again, how can he be bodily, real, actual, and how can we build our faith, knowing we also will be made like him? What does the resurrection body look like? Are we looking at a phantom here that is someone who can vanish? And, and in our minds, as we think, it's a ghost, a spirit. Or are we, as reported here, looking upon and seeing a portrait of an actual, resurrected, and fully physical, fully physical, resurrected 
body. You see, they did recognize him. Um, as the text says, they, they, they look at, just look up in there, verse 31, and I'll read through. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. It's the Lord. And he vanished from their sight. Verse 34, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon, reporting another point of appearance. So, so it's not that they don't know who he is that has appeared. The stranger earlier in the text indeed is the Lord. He has appeared. So, so they recognize he's here, but they haven't fully embraced the idea of the physical bodily resurrection. He, he's here. It was him. We know that. He vanished from our sight. So he appeared, it's him, and he's gone. So the question just remains, he's here in what manner? Or he's here in what way? And Luke will take pains here in the next few moments, you'll see in the portion of the scene that we're handling this morning in the resurrection, he presents Jesus as a firmly embodied human being. This is significant for us, significant for your faith that rests upon him. He is presenting him as a firmly embodied human being whose body now possesses new, unexpected and unexplained characteristics. A picture of what is referred to, and uh, if you were to kind of do some discovery work on the doctrine of the resurrection as it stands, and how do people speak of how Jesus can come and go? And then I think it is John that that reports in the Thomas episode, they were in, and then he, he notes for you, it was locked. The door was locked. So he's noting that for you in regards to how Jesus came and went, how he appeared and spoke peace to them. And then here, their eyes are open, and he vanished. The question of the resurrection body, is it bodily then? Will we be raised? Or will we be disembodied spirits? And we'll call that a resurrection. Luke says, no, we will not be disembodied souls in the resurrection. We will be raised to be like him. Well, what is he like? He is a fully embodied human being with new unexpected and unexplained from our perspective, like what he's taught us through scripture. Unexplained characteristics, as I said to you, is a picture of what is referred to as trans-physicality. Or, or maybe you'd know it this way, transformed physicality. That's the resurrected body. That, that, that's the best that we can grasp, trans-physicality. Uh, that he's physical. Right? He says that later in the text. He says, I, I bone in flesh, flesh in bones. Disembodied souls don't have that. And then we'll walk through the evidences of his body. If you, if you can, turn to 1 Corinthians, just so you can, we'll, we'll scan it just briefly of this idea of trans-physicality or, or, or transformed physicality. Because again, we, we don't want to, to downplay the physical nature and the reality of a bodily resurrection. That, that's what Luke is at pains to show us, to build our faith by. In the doctrine of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, if I didn't mention chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, and when we were there a few weeks ago at the point of resurrection, but Paul here in beginning of verse 35 is tackling the same thing. So he's raised, so, so you believe in a bodily resurrection. The question that remains for some, or perhaps we say for many, is of what kind of resurrection? And, and again, Luke is going to hammer of a physical type, of a bodily type. 
Verse 35, Paul then prompts the question. I'm just simply going to scan the text just briefly, and then we'll keep moving. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And, And then he presses the question a little bit further. The question behind the question, with what kind of body do they come? And then he drops down, verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Right? So, so, so far what I've submitted to you on the idea of the resurrection is Luke is presenting Jesus as a fully and firmly embodied human being. And, and, and some will ask, of what kind of body or human being? And I've submitted so far, again, whose body possesses new, unexpected, and unexplained characteristics. This is what Paul says, verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, one type. But notice, it is a body. And the glory of the earthly is of another kind. And verse um, 49, and, and maybe perhaps it'd be worth going back over this text a different time. I just don't have time to cover it this morning. But verse 49, th- th- this, this importance of getting this right and understanding it is bodily. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, the earthly body, what is the pledge to come that we see in Luke 24 and that Paul explicitly states here, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So again, you see, although the resurrected body of Jesus is significantly different Because it has new and unexpected and unexplained characteristics. It is indeed in a heavenly body. Nonetheless, it remains robustly physical. This is the emphasis. We're seeing a phantom. No, you're not. Phantoms, that is, ghosts, spirits don't have flesh and blood like I have. Or flesh and bone like I have. An Anglican bishop, um, J.C. Ryle, is perhaps helpful at this point as we're kind of coming down the runway and we're about to take off. Let me kind of move you with this thought of the resurrection and how we can make sense of this entire picture. That is, unpack the significance of what Luke is teaching here about the doctrine of the resurrection. How can we unpack it? J.C. Ryle is helpful here. He says, quote, a mighty principle is contained in this circumstance. So please hear, Luke 24 is what he's speaking of. The the, the transphysicality of Jesus' earthly body. He he, he unpacks it this way. A, A mighty principle is contained in this circumstance, which we shall do well to store up in our hearts. And and this is what he gets to. This this is what he's wanting you and I to store up in our hearts. Based on Luke 24 set of circumstances. What? And it is this. Our Lord permits us to use our senses in testing a fact or an assertion in religion. So so you're with me so far. This is what he's going to say. This is the point of Luke 24. Our Lord permits us to use our senses in testing a fact or an assertion in religion. Now he goes further. Things above our reason we must expect to find in Christianity. 
the critical piece there in that sentence, above. Things above our reason we must expect to find in Christianity, but things contrary to our reason and contradictory to our senses, our Lord would have us know we are not meant to believe. He concludes this way, a doctrine, so-called, which contradicts our senses is not a doctrine which came from him. How do you know that? How do, how do you know that? How, how do you know that the, the doctrine of Scripture doesn't contradict reason? Or that he permits us to use our senses in testing such a case as the physical nature of the bodily resurrection? How do we know this? J.C. Rao concludes this way. I think he's dead on. Because he bade the eleven to touch his hands, and to touch his feet. You see, the concept of the resurrection body, their eyes were opened, and he vanished from their sight. But it's him. I'm not a phantom. I have flesh and bones. Phantoms don't. I'm not a ghost. I'm here. It's me. You see, the concept of that, for us to wrap our mind around his coming and going, John saying, the door was locked and he appeared. And yet we argue all the time, this body will be raised. The concept of the resurrection body, as J.C. Ryle notes, goes above or it goes beyond our reason. That is what we can wrap our minds around. Look at verse 41. You see it, and we'll get there shortly. But look at verse 41. And while they still disbelieve for joy, here he is. He just spoke with them. And, And again, we'll unpack what that is. Here they are, seeing it, sensing it, touching it, and they're in disbelief for joy, and then you see what that means, because it's kind of an awkwardly worded thing, right? They they, they remain in disbelief for happiness sake. The the, the point is, we've all been there. I can't believe it, right, is the expression, and then it's clarified by Luke. They were marveling at what had happened. They can't believe it. The concept of the resurrection, the physical body that is raised, that he's not a ghost, and neither shall we be but our bodies will be raised. Again, it may go beyond our reason. As with the disciples here, they are blown away. But it is not strictly against reason. As evidenced in him who bade the eleven, come and touch, come and see who has something to eat. So I want to notice in the last few moments, and I say last few moments, but that's a longer section. But three reasonable, I've labeled them reasonable confirmations. Um, I think you could use there, at least as I'm launching from the the, uh, airstrip and and heading up now to to kind of take off with from the introduction, I'm suggesting it's a sensible. So you could say, again, these are three reasonable confirmations, appeal to the mind. They are maybe beyond reason, but not contrary to what is reasonable. And they are, I guess you could say, in their sensible. He permits you to touch 
and to see Thomas come over here then and put your hand in there. Do not be in disbelief, but believe. So, 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 so he's appealing, um, and, and uh, other scenes in the gospel as well, to this particular text, however, three reasonable, three reasonable confirmations of his bodily resurrection or three sensible confirmations of his bodily resurrection. The number one that comes to you in the text, the central piece that, that, that you have to grasp, this is a bodily resurrection, is the fact that, number one, he himself stands among them. Now, again, look at verse 36, the first reasonable confirmation of the bodily nature of the resurrection, the physical nature of the resurrection is verse 36. As they were talking about these things, and and these things have been covered, right? Luke is writing brilliantly. They started talking about these things back when they met the stranger earlier. Um, And then he asked them, what things are you talking about? And then he clarifies the things. And here they are visiting the disciples. And as they were still talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Now, we've noted a couple of times in this chapter the use of the emphatic usage of the grammar. That is, Jesus himself, to eliminate any lack of clarity regarding which Jesus, maybe something like Jesus, someone representative of Jesus, Jesus himself. You notice he does the same thing in verse 39. It's the same usage. Look, at, it's a point of emphasis so as to eliminate any other possibility of interpretation. Verse 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself. Again, it is not a proxy, someone to show up on his behalf. It could have been Jesus. It could have been somebody else. We're not sure, but there was a person there that at one point vanished and another person showed up. No, it is Jesus, Luke says, himself. No other body and no disembodied spirit. It is him, the one who was crucified three days ago. No other, no other body that he appeared in. It was him, the man of Nazareth, the man that we've known, the man that we've loved, the man that we've followed. It is him, the Lord. Now, related to the fact that it is him, and it, and it kind of builds the case, um, fills in, is the next act in the passage is simply the words that he offers them. It pairs with, it's no one else. It's him, himself, the Lord. And as evidenced, he appears, and look at what he offers them. He speaks to them, just as he would. Verse 36 And they were talking about these things. And Jesus himself stood among them, no one else, and said to them, this reinforces, it's him, peace to you. Now, again, this is precisely at this moment in the text where they're hearing reports Right? We want to tell you Jesus is alive. And they're all, they're all, their minds, their hearts are, are racing. They're hearing a report, the Lord is risen. 
And, and, and there's yet another evidence for the fact that it is him. Is he's appeared to Peter. Hey, Peter, it, it, right, right, right? He's alive. It, it's him. And now he appears. And at this moment, they see it's him, himself. And he says to them, right? No. Peace to you. I, again, what's, what is needing to be heard at this moment a word of peace. Why? Because if, if he appeared, perhaps their reaction is a little, what's going to occur? Why would they have that impulse? You see, they had not forgotten their pledges of allegiance from just three days ago. Their statements of readiness to die for their faith. They have not forgotten them. And between the moment of those pledges and his appearance in this room was reality. What actually occurred. And it wasn't pretty. You said they had pledged, and you recall, to top it all off was Peter insistent that he was that man to stand in that hour. I will die right now for you. And he was in that sense, right? We recall looking at his bio, he, he did stand in the garden. He was ready to throw down in the garden and protect him and, and go the mile. And yet we saw that it was leaning greatly upon his own strength and internal constitution, which is never enough. It's a weak footing. And it proved as such. By the end of his episode, there was a servant girl, someone well below him, below him in the narrative story, the way that it's structured, well below him, undoes him. So he went from this moment of pulling out the dagger to give it a go all the way to a servant girl that he can't honestly explain to. A moment of total devastation. And now from there to here, the Lord appears to them. Perhaps the question on the mind of those who scattered as the shepherd was struck, as he prophesied in Matthew, what's going to happen to me is the shepherd is going to be struck, the sheep are going to scatter. No, 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 not us, not this band of brothers, not this group, not me, maybe him, not me, but everyone. So the question at this moment when he appears, and it was Jesus, no one else, it was he himself, the question on the mind of those in the room perhaps is, if he is raised, if it is he himself, the Lord, is he coming in vengeance for our cowardice? What is due us for our weaknesses and denial? One author comments, Behold, the return which their master makes to his disciples. Look at the text. And while they were talking about all the things, crucifixion, death, resurrection, Moses, the prophets, the writings, it was Jesus. It was him. He's the Lord and he's alive. While they were talking about all of these things that make their hearts burn within them. He himself, no one else, no proxy, no spirit, Jesus, his body, stood among them. And then he said to them, peace to you. Behold the return which their master makes to his disciples. 
Not a word of rebuke here in is spoken. What about what we did? What about how we showed? What about how we failed? What about where we ran? Not a word of rebuke is spoken. Not a single sharp saying falls from his lips in the moment. Calmly and quietly, he appears in the midst of them. And he begins by speaking of peace. Why? We could assume why. We come up with a handful of reasons why. But biblically speaking, of Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior, why does he speak of peace to you in your moment of weakness, in your moment of sinful indiscretion, in your moment of rebellious transgression? Why would he speak peace to you in repentance? Because it is his glory to pass over transgressions. The question on the mind is what have I earned before him? But in the heart of a savior, it is his glory to pass over a transgression. See for a moment from this text how he delights in mercy. We like sheep have gone astray. He said such in Matthew. The shepherd we struck and the sheep will scatter. I told a certain girl that I didn't even know you. I cursed her out, in fact, to emphatically deny it and make sure I wasn't associated with you in your worst hour of trial. Peace to you. It is his glory to look over a transgression. See how he delights in showing mercy. Again, yet you will notice, though they are hearing words of peace in the text, and uh, he offers to them words of consolation, their immediate response, nonetheless, still persists in um, fear and alarm. So, so they hear it, but they don't really hear it. How often that is the same with us. He offers us peace. He offers us mercy. And how often we just refuse to hear it. Look at the, as the passage, again, the scene unfolds. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and, and he said to them, peace to you. But, so, so what is their response to this? They themselves were startled. And then it goes on, the, the, the comment of a panic. They were startled and they were frightened. They were in panic. That's the text. They were in frightened mode or panicking. So he says, peace to you. And they, their response is one of being startled and in a panic or frightened. And we have to ask, why? Why, why, why? When he appears, it's him whom we've walked with, whom we've heard, whom we've loved, whom we've followed, whom we've pledged for. And it's him. He's appeared. He's alive. And he just spoke peace to us. 
And yet our response is panic and fear. Why? There are two reasons provided for us in the text very obviously. Number one, they still think they're seeing a ghost. Or perhaps they feel that collectively they are having a hallucination. And if, if you were in this first century context and you read kind of uh, literature outside of the text of Scripture, you'd find that this is a rather natural response of the culture to such an event. Such a phenomenological event would be very reasonably responded to in the culture as this is a hallucination. Um, this is beyond the physical realm. This is something we group, think, and group together are experiencing of a hallucinating manner. That was a very natural response, and that is still at this moment what they fear that they are experiencing. That's why Luke is pounding the emphatic usage. It's himself. And their eyes were open to recognize him, but they still are under the uh, opinion that it's a ghost. You see that in the text, verse 37. They're startled and frightened, and this is Luke clarifies for us reason number one. Why are they in a panic in this room? Because they thought they saw a spirit. They're thinking it's a ghost. And then the next one is, is in verse 38. Why would they be in a panic? Number one, they think there's a ghost in the room or, or a phantom, or maybe we're having a group think hallucination. We're just in a panic. It's unclear. In verse 38, and he said to them, and this is the second reason um, why they're in a panic or they're completely startled. He addresses it. Why are you troubled? Why, why are, I can see it on your faces. Why are you troubled, startled, in a panic? And why, and here, here's the second evidence of, of, for, for, their, for their being troubled, for their being startled. It is, there's doubts that are arising in their hearts. The second reason why they are in a panic is they lack faith. Th that's at the center of this. They lack faith. That, that's the issue of doubt in the heart. They lack faith. It's very similar to the same thing that is up with uh, Clopas and, and his wife, Mary. L look at the way that he addresses them, and it's very similar as we covered earlier, but verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, in what capacity are they foolish? In what capacity are they slow of heart? In what capacity are these disciples here frightened and in a panic? Where is the failure? It's in the heart. A heart of what type? A heart of belief. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart. In what way, in what manner? To believe all that the prophets have spoken. It's the same thing. Verse 36, they're in this room and they're still talking about the same things. These things. They, they, they just heard. He has been raised. He explained all redemptive history from Genesis all the way up to the present. He's explained from Moses and the prophets that everything. You remember the Psalms of Israel? Yes. The ones of the king that spoke of his people? Yes. They spoke about Jesus. We just heard it. How do you know? He himself told us. Everything has been fulfilled in him. He's the Messiah. He just got done. Didn't our hearts burn within us? Yes, when he spoke the word concerning himself. And here they're speaking still. Those same things 
and yet they are slow of heart to believe them. Doubts are still arising that this could be true. They think they're still seeing a ghost at best. So maybe it's an image of the man of Nazareth, but it isn't him. And they're uncertain as to why exactly he's here in relationship to them. And they're in a panic. And the grounding reason is because there's doubt lodged deep within the heart. There's a failure to believe. Significant here is to locate the importance of faith. We've already dissected what faith is, and that was a couple of weeks ago, the three components of a biblical faith. But here Luke really wants to drive home to you and to I together the, the, the importance of location of faith. Where, does faith where, where must faith abide? Luke shows it to us by repeating it three times in this small little section. This is where the battle lies for you. This is where the battle lies for me. Calvin spoke of it as an idol factory. That's why the battle lies there. And you, and you see this here as he appeals to them and he says, why are you in a panic? Why are you filled with fear? Why do doubts arise? Because that's the place where the battle is in our walk with the Lord, in our walk by faith. It's not necessarily in the mind. Again, perhaps we're willing to embrace things that go beyond reason. Or even, uh, you know, we put our head in the sand, we're fine with things that are contradictory to reason if it upholds our faith. Maybe we're just not that inquisitive. But nonetheless, many times within our minds, our faith is sewn up. And, and we could give catechesis back in our responses. Um, we could prove to be kind of Sunday school Charlies when we're at church and really have it down and, and really know what goes for it. Do our, you know, be the fastest person in a sword drill. This is, so we might have the mechanics of Christianity down. And, 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 and the, the, the knowledge aspect of faith, we, we have it down. And, and in a solid community where we build upon the text of Scripture and we work through catechesis together, that, that is oftentimes, you know, I got that part down. But that's not the question of this particular text. Because, again, they knew the things. They've been talking about them for, for, for uh, over a day now. They've been talking about the things. They know the, the gnosis, of the, the knowledge aspect of your faith. They know it. But look at the way Luke describes, or, or our Lord describes, where the, where the problem is. Um, verse 25. You see the term heart. This is the location of a biblical faith. It's in the heart. It, it, that, uh, the Bible uses this term of heart as the inner person, the center of your being. That, that's where they're failing, is in their heart. Not, not necessarily in the mind. Um, they, they could probably know Moses and the prophets, but, but they're struggling in the heart. That's where faith must take residence. And I don't want to press it beyond. In verse 25, just jump down, and Luke records it the same way in verse 32. Uh, I said 25, sorry, I said 35. Down to 32. They said to each other, and now this is on the lips of, of Clopas and Mary together. What burned within them as he talked with them? What burned? Their minds? Man, I love all those biblical theological connections that Jesus was showing us in the Old Testament. It was mentally stimulating. It just, it just, it's such a web of ideas that it's glorious on a mental level. I'll just never get over it. And oftentimes that's true, right? We see the connections of Christ in the Old Testament, and it is mind-bending at times. Um, it, it is exciting. 
and, and it's gloriously, purposely written. So, so we see that. But notice, when it truly is grasped, it goes beyond the mind. That They sat there and said, did not our brains burn within us? No. They, they said, did not our hearts burn within us? The center of our being, that's where faith is deeply located. That's where faith translates from mind into assent and trust. The data goes in, and you acknowledge that is right. That, that, that could be a great biblical theological Sunday school class, or that could be a great sermon on all the connections of the Old Testament. And you say, yes, in the mind it went, and I assent to its truth. But you never fell back smacking right into it and depended upon it wholly because it lacks faith. You don't trust it. They're talking the things to death here. And there's still a failure to lay hold of it in the heart by faith. The final addressment, uh, addressing of the heart. So, so I showed you it began with a rebuke to the heart and its weakness. Verse 25, they speak of the burning of the heart in the center of faith in verse 32. And then here now, look at Jesus as he addresses, again, uh, he, uh, just read the text with me, verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why are you in this panic? And why do doubts arise in your brains? How are you not mentally able to grasp all the stuff I'm throwing at you and that I've just appeared? How, what, what? No, he's like, why is doubt lodged deep within the heart? This is critical to grasping biblical saving faith. This is what changes us from information to transformation. It is an experiencing of the fruit of faith deep within our inner being. Maybe a small piece of evidence or application to it would be, would you make any lifestyle choices differently based on the information that you have from Scripture? Would you make any? Would you curb any appetites? Would you find in you a drive and desire to grow and change and experience the Spirit's sanctifying work in your life by making difficult decisions because of your faith? Or do you come just to have your brain burn within you? This is addressed in the repetition of the usage of heart in the text. Here again, instead of a rebuke, though, as the text moves forward, our, our Lord speaks lovingly and condescends to each of us in our weakness here in the text. Again, he's spoken peace to them. He does address the issue of a failure to believe in the heart, a weakness of faith. But in that weakness of faith, he doesn't then rebuke them. Look at what he entreats of them. And that is he asks them to come and to touch him. See my hands and my feet. Guys, look. See my hands, my feet. And then the emphatic usage. It is I. Okay, sure, it's you. No, I myself. There, there is no other. It is me here. And then he tells them, touch. So he goes from, see my hands. And this is the second evidence. Um, that is, he asks them, evidence number two for the reasonableness of the resurrections. He asks them to touch him. Touch it. It's reasonable. It's sensible. I'm here and I'm alive. See my hands and my feet. Look it upon them. Well, what are we looking upon them? He doesn't specifically say here. Luke does, but uh, throughout the Gospels, uh, I think I should have looked particularly to John, is the point of the wounds with Thomas. What's he asking them to look at? The back of his hand? No, the holes upon his wrists. See them, that it is me. Touch them if you must. Go further. Lay hold of me. 
And for what reason? Oh, to strengthen your faith. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this to them, he showed them his hands and his feet. You see, to eliminate their doubt that he was a ghost or that they're having a group think hallucination, he draws their attention to looking at him for the marks of identification. Those wounds that he has, they strongly plead for me. Is it you? Yes. How can I know? Look for the identifying marks. This again is a concrete and sensory-driven evidence for his victory over death. Why? Why should they touch the scars? Why should he press them? See, you, you see how he goes further? See my hands and my feet? But look, he goes further. He, he, he goes further. Touch them. Why? Tim Keller rightly comments, because the last time they saw Jesus, they thought those scars were ruining their lives. He was being crucified. Do you, do you remember? You, you have to see that um, when verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking dejected, looking sad. Why? Because the last time they saw Jesus, they thought those scars were ruining their lives. It's over. What will we do now? But now in this invitation, Keller continues, now in this invitation, they see the scars they despised actually saved them. It is I myself. Peace to you. Come and touch them. And see them. And as we conclude our time this morning, notice their response to this. It's very predictable, very human, very natural, verse 41. And while they stood, dis, uh, and, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? Now, again, they are mentally overwhelmed. The, the text don't lose the um, meaning in the awkwardness of the language, disbelief for joy. You get the idea. The summary statement there is they were absolutely marveling, floored by the reasonableness, by the sensibleness of touching his nail-pierced nail hands and seeing the scar from which he was pierced and seeing his feet by the means which he was hung. They, they were blown away. It's him. It's our Lord. When t it's not recorded here, but in, in John 20, you, you, you all recall, and it becomes a colloquialism among us, a doubting Thomas. So we all know where that kind of comes from, right? And, and it's Thomas. By the time Thomas says, it, it's wild. A, a Thomas's statement says, unless I see this, and you see at the end of it, he says, I will never believe. I mean, it's very strong language. I will never. And everyone's like, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. Is, this, is, this is, and he appeared to us, and this is what he's like, I will never believe that. 
very strong. And then the Lord appears and he does the same condescending to our weaknesses. Thomas, come over here and touch me. Put your hand right here. And you remember the response is similar, however, to what we read right here. They were marveling. You remember Thomas ended by saying, my Lord and my God. This is what's being stated, similar in 41. While they disbelieve for joy, that they simply cannot believe it. And they are marveling that it is beyond comprehension. This transphysicality, this transphysicality of who he is, it's him. He is raised. And then what does he do? While they're just about, you know, tipping back, he goes for the knockout punch, right? He just overwhelms them with one more huge piece of evidence. Like, they can't handle any more sensory overload, emotional overload, spiritual overload, and then he just presses the picture just that much further to solidify the deal. Does anybody have some food to eat? You're kidding me. I'm not a ghost. I'm your pledge to the resurrection. Notice how Luke frames it here at the end. The emphasis is the very last two words of verse 43. Um, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. Can you imagine that they give it to him and then stand back and they're like, what, what, what's going to happen with the fish? It, it, what is, is, is this really happening? He broke bread earlier in the event with Clopas and Mary. He broke it, but he left it. Still leaving them a question mark, what is this? And now he's going to take it and he's going to break it and he's going to eat it. And the emphasis of resurrection in his trans-physical body is located in verse 43 in the last two words. And he took it and he ate it. And here are, here's the point of emphasis before them. If, if, to any of you who have kids or have experienced this with, with younger people, the same thing where they're just learning their first magic trick, right? And it's the disappearance of one thing from one hand to another. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah. They're like, hey, watch, this is going to be amazing. You're like, okay, great. And you, they go like this and they go, it's gone, right? It's the, the pitch behind the back and then somehow... Amazingly, it's gone. That, that, that's the emphasis here. That he, he, he can't do that. He didn't look away. He didn't move away. That's what Luke is saying. Do you understand? He took it and he ate it, not in a different room, and then came back and told us how it was. And he didn't turn around and be like, hey, look, everybody over there. And they go, what? And he, and he throws it, and he's like, that was really good. It, it's, it's not a sleight of hand. It's an evidence of the physicality of the resurrection. He ate it. How? Before them. It was him. He's alive. And so, if I was to conclude the episode here of the resurrection, of which, again, next, this Saturday, we'll look at the ascension. As I thought about winding down our time and the account of the resurrection of Luke 24, it is really, really hard to summarize the importance of it. Uh, how, how do you conclude with this body of evidence about the Lord who is transphysically raised? He, he is raised and he is alive. And, and to each one of you whose faith rests upon him, you also will be like him. I, I started there in 1 Corinthians 15. Take the text, read the text, pour over it, receive it through faith, pray over it. He is your pledge. He is the first fruits of all who come after him, every one of you, whose faith rests upon him.
you will be made like him. There are so many doctrines in the Bible that are annexed to the, pro, to the um, truth of the resurrection. It's impossible to summarize its significance. That's why Paul said, if he's not raised, forget the whole thing. Everything is annexed to it. How do you summarize such a doctrine? I think in our last comment of Luke 24, here in the point of the resurrection, what does Luke want us to walk away with? Many things, I'm sure, but if I could submit one standing truth out ahead of others, that everything, I think, flows in and out of, and it is simply this, the fact of the resurrection of Jesus, the fact of it, the truth of it, the reality of it. That's why he's saying, look at him. Hey, over here, touch me here. Look at me here. I'm going to eat this in front of you. The fact of the resurrection of Jesus is what makes the gospel story not merely a great experience to read, which we've duly noted about Luke. It's a beautiful work. But it's the fact of it. The certainty, O Theophilus, the certainty of it. That makes it not merely a great experience to read, but a life-changing power for all who believe. That's what Luke wants you to know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time around your word for a few moments. We pray that our, our faith would arise, that we would, we would willfully go beyond reason. We would receive of what you've shown us. We receive what you declare to us. Lord, as we have looked upon you, heard you in your word, let us now gaze upon you in the table. We see you, we taste it, we touch it, we, we hold the bread, the, the, the sign of the body. We hold the cup, the sign of the blood. We receive nourishment from it. Oh, Lord, strengthen the weakness. Thank you for condescending to us down so lowly that you would provide for us, for the weakness of our faith, such an instrument of nourishment and growth that increases our faith and our holiness. Thank you for your word. Let us now have faith to receive it repent of our sin, to trust in your love, to show mercy to us. Let us be washed and renewed, once again nourished upon your word and your sacraments. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.